Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And we are back for another week. We are excited for this week because our friend Henry is back, and he's here to give us an update on his recent trip overseas. But you don't want to hear that from me. You want to hear that from him. So first and foremost, welcome back, Mr. Jeff Copsetta. Jeff, how are you doing tonight, sir? Good, good. It's, it's good to kind of have the three amigos back all at, all at once. Yes, we're we're back, and it's freaking awesome. But uh, Henry, sir, how you been? Yeah, hey, guys. Um, <clears throat> I've been good, man. Just, you know, working and doing all the usual stuff. Uh, but, yeah, it's good to see you guys. So you've been super busy traveling the world. You got invited overseas by the fine people over at the We Have Ways podcast. And uh Correct. I, I gotta say the the after show posting from all the sources, all the people, all the communities to see what happened at that event's like talk about fear of missing out. That looked like a great time. Give us the rundown, um how things Man, get upset so- and the travel and the whole nine. Yeah, so when I, when I spoke in New Orleans at the international conference back in November, James Holland came across for that because he spoke. He had a couple of things going on with that. I was a big fan of of James's James and Al Murray's podcast, the We Have Ways of Making You Talk podcast. Hundreds of episodes. They it's just an amazing podcast. I really enjoyed listening to it. I mean, they get really granular on all kinds of aspects of World War II history, not limited to ETO. I mean, it's, it's Mediterranean, it's Pacific, it's ETO, just, it's really prolific and and very engaging. And they have some great guests on there too. So I had listened to quite a few episodes of it. So it was, it was kind of cool to know James Holland was going to be in New Orleans. And then, you know, he, he came up and started talking to me after I had done my thing with Rich Frank and Saul, Saul David. And, uh, I mean, this was like, imagine I kind of, it's a goofy analogy, you know, but it was like being a guitar student and having Jimmy page come up and talk to you, you know, it's kind of what it felt like, but, but we, he ended up interviewing me for, for an episode of the, we have ways podcast, like the next morning at breakfast, me and Saul both. Um, but he said, you know, Henry, I love hearing you talk, man. I love hearing you talk about your dad. Would you consider coming across to our We Have Ways History Festival uh, next fall? And I said, yeah, sure. I mean, if you're inviting me, I'd love to do that. So where is their festival held at? What uh, this this year? So this year's the third time they've had it. <clears throat> um, I think the first time they did it, I'm actually not sure where they did it this year. They had it at a place at a place called Black Pit Brewery, which we stayed at the Silverstone Hilton. So that's where everybody stayed. That Silverstone is in the Formula One Silverstone circuit. Okay. Like literally the circuit runs right by the hotel. The hotel is part of Silverstone Formula One circuit. So that's where everybody was staying. Um and Silverstone, so my Andrea and Jack and I went over about a five days ahead of time because we just wanted to do the sightseeing thing in London. Sure. So we did that, did the tourist bus thing and saw, saw some really cool sites. Um, 
the highlight of that was taking Jack on the HMS Belfast, uh, you know, the famous cruiser, the the British cruiser that it literally was um, moored as a floating museum just a few hundred yards down from the Tower of London Hotel where we stayed. Uh, but but the We Have Ways Festival was about an hour and a half northwest of London. Okay. Okay. So we stayed in London, did our own thing, and just did the sightseeing thing, did did, did that. And then Friday, the, the day of the beginning of the festival, we actually met Leighton. Uh, we took a taxi to RAF Northolt. Leighton met us there and drove us the rest of the way to Silverstone. Um, where we checked into the hotel and then my, my thing, my speaking engagement was that evening. It was pretty early on when the festival started, but, um, <clears throat> there were probably, so the way the layout of it was, it was these really large tents, you know, and then you had reenactors, reenactment groups, you had a tank arena with Jeeps, towed guns, all kinds of other types of vehicles. Um, I assume there's like vendor booths for reenacting gear and all that stuff there as well. Um, not as much as you might think they had a really cool model tent, which Jeff, you would have loved <laughs> that, man. I mean, the stuff in that model tent was just, it was hard for me to look at cause I've been wanting to get back into building models. And I just don't have the space to do it right now. But, uh, but and then they had like a they called it the green room, but that was that was like the part of the building where speakers and families and stuff hung out, you know, while people were between their their presentations, gigs or whatever. But um, I yeah, so not that long after Leighton drove me over, you know, my my family came over later, but Leighton drove me over because my thing was going to be at like five forty five p.m. Um, I spoke in a panel conversation with a guy named David Christofferson, whose father was Stanley Christofferson, who was the commander of the Sherwood Rangers, which was a British Sherman tank unit that fought in Normandy, wow. well, all the way across Europe. Saw some really heavy combat. Um, James Holland's book, uh, Brothers in Arms, deals specifically with the Sherwood Rangers. Cool. Um, so David Christofferson was the son of the guy who was the commanding officer so he and I were on a panel together speaking on the legacy of war. Um, so, yeah, what, we our thing was like an hour long. What was uh, the gist of your presentation? Kind of like talking about your role in preserving your father's legacy, or was it more historical-based? What was your particular presentation about? Well, it was so Al, Al Murray, who's James Holland's co-host, moderated the conversation and it it was the importance of our father see the thing about david's father the the commander of the sherwood rangers he was the guy who never talked about it where obviously as you guys know my dad did so my father's story was well known david's father left a journal and some letters which ended up getting transcribed and published and then james holland drew upon those to write the book brothers in arms about the sherwood rangers but Growing up, you know, our memories of conversations and that kind of thing, which, I mean, for David, there really wasn't, in, in that aspect of it, wasn't a lot to draw from because his father was pretty taciturn about it. You know, sure. just didn't really talk about it much. But um, 
but it, it was a lot of that. Some of it was historical based, but I mean, I can't say enough about Al Murray. I mean, his mastery of the subject. I mean, obviously they know David Christofferson because he's a personal friend, but his grasp of all aspects of World War II history is just so good. He was able to ask some really, um, some, just some really good questions that kept the conversation going. As someone who's frequently interviewed about your father, you know, cause we do podcasts, we interview people, you know, they often ask us for example questions, which we don't have because we don't write any questions down beforehand. At least I don't. Yeah. Yeah. But as the interviewee, do you find it kind of refreshing when somebody actually, as you were just saying, he knows so much about the subject, the topic that you're not getting the, that he might actually come up with a new fresh question for you to ponder opposed to the normal stuff that people might tend to ask if they're not as in depth on the subject. Yeah, I, I think, I think I would definitely answer yes on that. Um, and it was really, it was an interesting comparison or juxtaposition with David because like one of the things Al asked me was how did you, how have you guys with your father's world war two legacies, um, you know, when did you become aware of it? How did you come to terms with, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. I, I, David kind of looked at me and I looked at him and said, look, let me go first. Cause I, I can answer it really quick. And I'll <laughs> step out of the way and let David talk. And I said, with the old breed, the Pacific, you know, it's, it's there. It's public knowledge. Uh, and then I step aside and let David take the rest of that time. And, you know, so for him, it was a more nuanced answer, of course, because the letters that his father, go ahead. No, I'm just taking a breath. Listen. Okay. Uh, the letters that his dad wrote that, you know, kind of became the basis for his journal was published. It was called an Englishman at war. Uh, and I have not read that, but I am reading Brothers in Arms. I started reading it before the trip because I wanted to be prepared. I wanted to be able to engage with David the best way I could. Super nice guy. You know, probably about my age, maybe a couple years younger. But very nice. Well, no, actually, he was a few years older. But great guy. Super nice. Whole family was nice. Uh, and it, was, it just made for a really good juxtaposition to have our different, you know, his dad being the heart of heavy combat in the ETO, my dad's story well known from the Pacific. So, you know, it was just it was just a really good point counterpoint kind of thing. Since we're on the subject of how this realization has affect, affected you guys growing up and as you're just stating, how is your son kind of taking all this stuff? I mean, first he got a trip, you know, he went to the museum, saw you speak, he, you know, he's seen, mm. you know, the interviews of his grandfather and all that, but now you're, he's traveling across the world to participate in this, whether actively or as a close observer, how's this sinking in with him? Um, I, I really encourage him to be interested in the world war two history, but I don't push it. Sure. Cause I think we've talked about, um, that that's a good question because I think my wife told me something. I, I there was there was a certain point. Oh, um, I mentioned something about Sledgehammer's grandson, you know, and and Andrew and Jack were sitting pretty close to the front, and I pointed out my wife and son are right there, and and you know Al, Al Murray just has this really delightful like an English pub owner, just this avuncular you know, boisterous wit. And he's just really engaging. He's like, oh, he's got an impressive mop of hair there, mate. So, <laughs> you know, Jack kind of stood up. Well, I mean, there were John McManus who I hung out with for most of the weekend. It was fabulous to be able to do that. He told me there were probably 2000 people in that tent. I mean, it was a really big tent. 
you know, and well attended. But my wife told me later after Jack kind of got recognized and she did too. She said that that kind of struck a chord. Like it dawned on Jack, like, wow, man, my dad's up here talking in front of all these people about, you know, it really seemed to make an impression on him. I wonder if the geographical distance from his hometown struck a different chord. Cause maybe he's thinking, okay, we're in Alabama. My grandfather's from the area. He's a local, but to hear, you know, maybe to live in that environment. Okay. You kind of understand, but now you're literally on the other side of the planet and people have the same reverence for him. I wonder if that maybe struck a chord a little bit different to him. Like, Oh, wow. This is something. I, I think it did because look, man, I mean, even though like the tank arena, okay. Mm-hmm. Where they had, some British tanks I had a Sherman tank, which I really wanted to get a ride on, but I could, it just couldn't happen. They had the Russian T-34, which I did. Jack and I got a ride. I mean, Jack knew the only way that that happened was because I told Al, I'm like, Al, I really want to get a ride on either the Sherman or the T-34. And he said, we'll sort that out, mate. We'll make it happen. Well, I mean, it, it took him intervening like, Hey, can you give this? And, and it, the other people were getting rides too. It's not like only I got a ride. I mean, sure. I wouldn't have liked that. I would not have felt comfortable with that. You know, believe it or not, I wouldn't have. But yeah, other people got rides. But I mean, it's not like you just stood in line and everybody in line got a ride on the damn tank. Yeah. It was way more complicated than that. But I, I think it, <clears throat> again, I tried not to shove it down his throat mm-hmm. about what it's all about. He He gets that. But I think it, it it struck a chord, man. I mean, I'll tell you something else that, that made an impression on him was, so right after we got done speaking, David and I went backstage and took off our little, you know, boom mics or little wire mics we had. Your Jessica John Simpson McManus headphones? backstage. Do what? I said your Jessica Simpson headphones? He, well, no, they were not headphones. They were, it was just a little thing that comes, you really can't even see it. Yeah, that's what like Britney Spears and Jessica Simpson back oh, in the day okay. when they were right. doing all that dancing. That's how they would yeah, okay. allegedly yeah. sing. <laughs> allegedly. So uh, we, we're taking that off and taking a little clip off and all that stuff. Well, John McManus comes backstage with this other dude named Matt McLaughlin who wrote a book called The Cowra Breakout. Uh, he's Australian. He's a Guadalcanal tour guide. Got to spend some time getting to know him. Very, very nice guy. But John, you know, had been in the audience, comes back there. We hug like, you know, long lost friends and just pretty much hung out together for the rest of the weekend. That was really cool. But um, while we were talking, then my wife came backstage because she'd never met John. This guy comes up and said, hey, the, there's a line for you to sign books. And John's thing was going to be later. So it really wasn't for him. I thought he was talking to John and he was like, no, Mr. Sledge, I'm talking to you. So they take me through, you know, across the festival site to where the bookshop and they had a great bookshop, by the way, Uh, you know, because obviously most of the people who spoke this thing have written books, but um, they they had a table set up for me to sign, which I think that probably, I think Andrew posted pictures of that. Um, but there were, I mean, look, to go back to your point of the geographical distance and to see that recognition of who Sledge was, I mean, man, there, I probably signed 75 copies of his book, which, you know, I don't, my brother and I've talked about that because he sometimes gets asked to do it to this day. I don't feel worthy to do it. It still feels weird, but I'm not going to tell people, no, I won't do it. 
Like, yeah, I'll, I'll sign in the back. <laughs> well, I, I mean, believe me, I feel like I should, but, um, I, you know, it was just so many people who said they enjoyed what we talked about. And, um, and then, you know, after that, McManus and I were walking around like the next day and the bookshop guy said, Hey, Mr. Sledge, could you come in and sign some stock for us? That's you know, cool. so I probably signed two boxes worth there. So all total, maybe 70, 75 copies. I, I don't really know, but that's awesome. It, 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 yeah, it was cool. I mean, just the thing that meant the most to me, and, and I'll tell you this, and, and we as World War II lovers will appreciate this. It wasn't just, I, I call it the gun show crowd, you know, the over 50 mm -hmm. males that you, you, you can count on them being interested in what we do. You yeah. know, you can count on it. There, there were, so many young guys that's awesome i'm talking early 20s mid 20s who were like oh you've convinced me oh and now i've just bought your dad's book or i'm gonna buy it or i'm gonna read it, or i just started reading it, or i'm watching the pacific because we talked about that too um it's cool to see these young people who are really engaging did anybody ask you if you had like a merch booth set up where they could buy your dad's book has that ever occurred to you, maybe to bring a few copies? Especially China Marine. I mean, a lot of people don't even know that one's out there. Yeah, no, that, that didn't. I mean, I well, you know, I couldn't have just because of luggage and, sure. and the logistics. But um, nobody asked me that. And then they had so many copies of the book anyway. Oh, uh, yeah, because you, yeah, you were saying that the bookstore was there. So, yeah, that makes sense. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, there, there's not just that part that... I mean, there, it was just an excellent World War II event. You know, like the next day we walked around a little bit. Like, I mean, you you look out in the woods behind the fields where the tanks were and everything, and it looked like a Normandy. It wasn't a hedgerow, okay? There was no bocage. But it, it kind of had, it had obviously that European feel to the woods that I don't get here in Alabama. Yeah. You know, and and there were some, some guys reenacting various British units who were, bivouacked out there one unit had a had a really good map set up they're all in full gear you know full kit and people would come up and look at the map and this guy would give this really excellent description of what they were actually like the part of the normandy campaign that they were actually reenacting i mean the guy was his level of knowledge on it was was fantastic i That's mean awesome he probably spent 10 minutes describing every bit of his operation wallace i think it was um, all the reenactors I saw were British. Didn't see any American ones. Um, but did see some American vehicles like the Sherman tank. Probably a lot of Jeeps, but, huh? A lot of Jeeps, um, uh, towed guns. Like I said, they did, which I'm sure you guys have seen this hundreds of times. I've never seen this where they do like a, they do like, they'd have a tank coming down the wood line a hundred yards away. And then they, have the guys coming up with the Jeeps and the guns doing like reenacting a, they had a 25 pounder or 17 pounder and, and smaller, you know, and, and the gun crews are going into action firing blanks, obviously, but you really got to smell the smoke and see, you know, get that tactile sense of it, which I've never seen that. Yeah. I mean, you say what you want about blanks, the tank shooting blanks still puts off a nice, nice thunder boom. Oh, it, for sure. I mean, I couldn't believe when the Sherman tank fired up, and it was cool just to even hear that engine run because I think it had it was one one of the ones with the radial engine. Oh wow! Which I love the radial engine sound. I mean the smoke from that thing and from the T thirty four too. I was at an event one year where um, World War Two armor 
had their long com set up. And I'm in my car, my truck, got my equipment on. I'm doing a podcast interview. And they're lighting that thing off, I think, once every two hours. And I'm literally in my Tacoma watching my windshield flex just from the the blank coming out of the thing. I couldn't imagine a real payload, the amount of damage that compression does. But just from that blank shooting yeah. over the parking, I'm watching my windshield go, whoop. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, the, it's amazing. The the last night of it, because I, I this is one of my favorite parts. Of it. They do this thing. Apparently, they've done it every year. They call it. I think they call it Google box. There's a reason for that term. And I never found out what it was, but what they do is they sit there and they watch various clips of the movies that we all love. Okay. As world war two aficionados. And they either poke fun at them or they kind of talk about, Oh, this was really well done here. But the movie where Eagles dare, I mean, are, are we familiar with it? It's one of my favorites. That sounds like it's more than just wheelhouse. I notably don't have yeah, the expansive knowledge of older movies. With me? My son loves that movie, and and I love Clint Eastwood. I don't love that Clint Eastwood movie. No, I, I get it. <laughs> I love the movie because I remember being a 10-year-old kid seeing it first. But the reason I bring it up, their special guest that night was, remember the blonde-haired Gestapo officer? I seem to remember this. I seem to remember this. Cathedral was on the other side of the square in Dortmund. Oh, but yeah. A long time since I've been there. Maybe I was mistaken. And, you know, he gets shot toward the end. They had that guy. His name is Darren Nesbitt. They huh. had that actor show up. And sit yeah, up. He's like 150 years old. <laughs> he's, he's up in his 80s. He's pretty old. <laughs> But it looked great. It, you couldn't look at him and recognize him because he's got a beard and white hair. Uh, but when he talked, the voice was still, you know, you could you could hear the voice. Huh. I mean, you could tell it, but they were like, hey, it's Darren Nesbitt. Or, yeah, Darren Nesbitt, not Brian. Darren Nesbitt. Yeah, they uh, had that actor show up. So they, you know, he actually dropped a bunch of F-bombs. But I was, this guy. Yeah, but, you know, it was a pretty cool conversation. I'm looking through this cat's IMDb page, and obviously most of this is overseas work, but he's been working. His last project was in 2020. So this guy's been doing work actively nonstop since 1956 when he did The Adventures yeah. of Sir Lancelot. This guy, I didn't know that. He, I mean, I, I, I remembered when being a kid seeing the movie and just his character was just this you know, this menacing, he had the, the red armband and the black Gestapo uniform. But yeah, man, Darren Nesbitt showed up and told a few jokes. And He's been, uh, he's been active. I'm not to lay into this, but he's been actively working. I mean, there's almost not a year. Maybe he had a span of like two years where he didn't have a project, but he's been actively working since 1957. That's tremendous. Yeah, prolific. I heard somebody say that, like, you know, they had to work out a contract and, and you people brought him in. They sure. drove him back because where I was standing was kind of to the side of the, the out just outside the, the tent, you know, where then way up on stage is where they were. But you, I saw him when he came in. He, you could tell he had family members drive him up really close to where they would walk him in. But I heard that, like, the deal they had to work out, they could only have him for 30 minutes. Wow. Yeah, they he played him in. They got their 30 minutes and he, you know, he was real engaging, told a bunch of jokes and, you know, got pretty, pretty foul, honestly, but it was still funny. But 
But then at the end of 30 minutes, you know, he had he, a heart out. out. And then Al and James continued on just talking about other, uh, they, they showed a clip from band of brothers, showed a clip from the Pacific, showed a clip from a bunch of British stuff I've never heard of or seen. So on the topic of the Pacific, mm-hmm. how was that to see in a different narrative? Uh, well, I mean, I'll tell you, so they showed the clip they showed from Band of Brothers was the one where they go into, uh, Holland, okay. you know, and you've got, uh, Bull Randleman, you know, and it was, what's when they see, they see the Stug and they see the, the tiger tank and Johnny Martin jumps up on the British tank. I'm telling you, he's right there. Yep. Put it around through the, no, my so, I, I can't shoot if I very well can't see him. Now can I, Exactly. So, are you coming along or are you getting off? Exactly. Everybody's kind of like, oh, you know, and Alan James were like, oh, they're pointing out some things about British behavior that's not necessarily true. So that was, that was some of that, you know. But like Mystery Science fun. Theater 3000-esque? Yeah, it's all in fun, you know. But so they do that and they kind of, they kind of, honestly, they kind of gig the scene a little bit, which I was surprised because they all love Band of Brothers. I mean, there's, yeah. there's no doubting that. They love Band of Brothers, but that one little scene, they kind of they kind of gigged on that a little bit. But then, then he's like, "Well, you know, they made another famous American TV series, and it was The Pacific." And I'm like, "Oh God, really <laughs> here, here we go." Yeah, you know, I didn't know what to expect. But then they show where they're massing up to attack across the airfield. Mm, great scene. And James is just like, "Is this not some of the most flawless television you've ever seen?" He said, "Everything about this is perfect." I mean, and they were, it, the scene went on for several minutes. They didn't cut it off quick either. And I mean, they, they were both just like, this is absolutely flawless. It's so well done. Yeah. You know, and then, then they kind of moved on to something else. But Yeah, but they kind of reminded the audience of how hot and miserable it was because they start out with Gunny reminding people to take their salt tablets. And then it's like, yeah. oh, never mind. We don't have enough time. Deal with it later. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh, um, got to go. And it, it was unseasonably hot too. It was just oh. like Alabama over there no oh really rain. yeah no rain till the last day and even then it was still hot temperatures mid 80s which for them here feels wonderful they're expecting cool weather it was like holy shit man this is dang near unpleasant you know? <laughs> especially but, being there in a button up and got a nice sport coat on or did you go more polo i can't remember the photo no you I, had a polo I, you went polo, dude. I, like I, golf had, shirt. I took my navy blue blazer expecting to wear it because, hell, I thought, you know, we were packing for the trip. We thought, well, it's going to be in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Well, we get there, and, you know, like Leighton drives me in, and he's like, hey, mate, I've got a speaker here. Go to speaker. You know, and the guy's like, hey, I got out here, turn left. Yeah, well, Leighton takes off the wrong direction. I'm like, <laughs> dude, he didn't go that way. So he, he gets us, he gets us squared away. And then I said, can you please drop me on? Because I don't feel like. You know, I was wearing khakis and nice shoes. And yeah. It was hot. And I did. I was already tired from, from traveling that morning. How long morning. was that flight? Not to interrupt you. No, the, the flight going over, well, coming home, it was like eight hours and 40 minutes, I think. That's a whole work day. So obviously, going over was about the same thing. It was, I didn't feel it coming home, man. I felt it going over. Is there a, a noticeable difference in the space availability to a seat? in a plane that you're going to be racked up in for eight hours versus a, a plane you get on for an hour and a half, two hour skip across a few States, or they've still the same confined small ass seats. Uh, well, this was a sweet over and back on a seven sixty seven. Um, 
I just wanted to sit on the aisle. I didn't want to be stuck in the middle and have to go to the bathroom. I yeah. did not want to deal with that. So um, I tell you, man, the first class sections on those jets, which we were not in, sure. those first class sections are nice. But we were economy plus, I think. I mean, they they, they paid for my ticket, not for I paid for my family's. And, they, you know, they wouldn't pay for first class. I wouldn't no. have asked them to anyway. No, I was but, just wondering. Uh, I didn't know if planes that they intentionally used for an eight-hour flight was literally just bigger to accommodate that longevity you know, time versus, a, you know, a Southwest flight you would take two states across, which are yeah, it's, awfully it's, small. The plane's bigger, but there are more people on it. Yeah, that's true. You know, you've got like three and – or two, three and – or two, four, two, I think. I can't remember. Um, it may have only been three seats in the center aisle. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they stuff them with as many people as they can get in there. So, I miss yeah. the good old days. Remember, how tall are you, Henry? I'm 5'8", five, 5'8 eight, five, eight and a half. Jeff, how My tall are you? Jack's 5'10". I mean, he's taller than I am. Jeff, I'm how tall are you? 5'11". 5'11", yeah. 5'11". Remember the good old days when we'd walk on a plane and a flight attendant would see and say, Ah, uh, yes, you're tall. How would you like the bulkhead seat? Right this way. Now it's, oh, yes, you're tall and lanky. How would you like the bulkhead seat? That would be $50 upgrades. Like, I miss the old days. Just being six foot five, man, they would see me coming and like, come here, let's give you some leg room. We'll put you in the emergency you would be, aisle. I mean, sitting where we sat, you would have been miserable. Yeah. If you're six five, you would have been miserable. Anytime I have to use the head and I take a picture because I'm like folded in half, it's, it's smaller than being in a camper. Yeah. Being six foot five, five and regular, it's horrible. So I couldn't only imagine. That's why I ask is like, Ooh, eight hour flight. Oh, <laughs> so, but yeah, well, you know, when like back when my mom was alive and we Hollywood, we went out there, you know, she could kind of get away with saying, well, I don't think we, we might have flown first class with her because she demanded it. Well, yeah. you know, I would never do that, but she was like, man, she was pretty old at that point too. You know well, what I mean? well, she got to Eight. lose, right? Yeah. So then they accommodated us. But so like, I think once we got the bulkhead seat, which, you know, like when we're filing onto the plane, we're looking at the bulkhead seats, just going, Oh my God, it would be so nice mm -hmm. to have that. But that's the first time I've flown overseas, you know, since probably Oh seven. Yeah really long time for me to, to fly to, to Europe. What sort of um, touristy sightseeing ventures did you do in your off time? Um, well, in London, we saw the tower of London. I, one of the things uh, when we saw Piccadilly square, um, di didn't go to the Imperial war museum because, and there's a reason for that because I was kind of trying to soft pedal the world war II stuff in London for, for, because I wanted, there were a lot of things my wife wanted to see. Yeah, I was going to say, for the sake of your family. So, okay, this yeah, is all I mean, of our vacation. I wanted them to do what they, you know, the only World War II thing that we did in London was I took Jack to see the Belfast. Yeah. And that was great. Everything else was not, like Tower of London, walked by Buckingham Palace, didn't tour it, you know, saw the guards marching around. That was pretty cool. Of course, they were burning up in there. Oh. At the Tower of London, you see the guards with the big fur mm -hmm. hats, and they're dressed up in their red coats. And um, I talked to some other, like, living history presenters at the Tower of London, and they were, oh, the, the young fit lads, they're serving military. They're up for it. But, but every 20 minutes, a person would go up to these guys, take their temperature, and hand them water. Yeah. And the, this gentleman I was talking to who worked there, he was dressed up in some kind of, you know, medieval 
costume. He, he said, oh, I'm, we've had guys fall out before when it's this hot. Oh, I can he imagine. Said, normally it's not an issue. Yeah. But Tower, yeah, Tower of London was very interesting. Um, I mean, there were things down on the waterfront. We, the the Tower of London Hotel was where we stayed. Uh, London Bridge was right there with its big towers, the the drawbridge that would lift up. We wanted to tour that, just couldn't make it happen. Um, but did lots of lots of other things. Uh, like I said, Buckingham Palace. We walked around that. Did not take the tour of that because that's booked up months in advance. Um, when you see some of those larger lands, the landmarks from outside, do they uphold to your expectation or is it kind of like when you first see the castle? Obviously these are real buildings, but yeah. the American equivalent is growing up. You always see that commercial where they put the camera on the ground at Mickey Mouse and the castle yeah. looks super big and they show up and say, wow, that thing's 12 and a half feet tall. Was there anything? Well, big Ben, um, which is this iconic, I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's totally beautiful, but driving by it on the tour bus, you know, the open tour bus, the open second deck there, which the weather was perfect for that. Um, you see big Ben and it's like, man, it doesn't look like it's the clock is beautiful. Yeah. Okay. It's ornate and well-maintained, but it's not that tall. I guess yeah, by today's standards, not at all. But I guess back yeah. when it was built and they're doing it on rickety bamboo scaffolding, he's like, "Oh wow, that's a feat." But I mean, yeah. you look at it and it's like, "Wow, that's Big Ben." I mean, it's beautiful, but it's sure. not not nearly as statuesque as you would would have expected. But uh, we did this big Ferris wheel called the London Eye. I think it's called. Yeah, it's I think they got an equivalent thing. out in Vegas. Yeah, beautiful view of of the Thames River and just. All kinds of stuff like that. I mean, that was, we did the riverboat tour, which, uh, that was fun. You know, still so hot though, but. Hot. No, I was, I was trying to think of a follow-up question about, you know, World War II related in the area, but you pretty much covered that. You kind of let your family have a little bit, bit of a break from that. But look, riding around on the bus, we saw Hyde Park. We saw all these other iconic places. We passed a cathedral that had, you could look at the pockmarked walls. And then they tell you when you got your little earphones in that, like, this is one of the few buildings left in downtown London that has bomb damage. And you could really see it. It was near Westminster Abbey. Did they have any references or even maybe a little, is obviously the tube system through London is huge, but. Do you know, have they ever, like, kind of glassed off, like, one little corner of it to commemorate the time spent down there during the air raids that you know of? I had that question in my mind because they talked about, we never did see, like, we never rode the tube. We, mm -hmm. we just didn't have time. Um, we walked everywhere, took the tour buses in London and in London proper. But I think I... I had that question in my mind because that they talked about how, well, you know, the tube was basically an air raid shelter for the women and children and the old men, you know, when the bombing really started. And I'm sure somewhere they have done that because yeah. it's just so talked about and so much a part of their culture that I can't imagine they wouldn't. No, that, but you would figure they got to have miles of just areas of the tube that they don't use anymore just because of progress that they could easily just block off 
a hundred foot section of it yeah. and put some yeah. lights and displays and a few signs in there and yeah and make it into a time capsule which i hope they've cool. done that. i honestly hope they've done that i just don't know on that but um yeah i mean london was cool but i no desire to live there and it's it's so unlike the rest of england that we saw obviously it's more congested but what other i guess i'm asking you this is it as an american when you go over there is it kind of surprising how close everything is the only reason i make that suggestion is whenever because especially down here in florida we have a lot of european tourists and all that and you see them on uh, videos and stuff where they're surprised how spread out everything is like oh wow people here drive 45 minutes to go to a grocery store whereas over there everything's within walking distance is that really noticeable while you're there what i did notice was like we would meet people like when jack and i were on the belfast it was a guy who was obviously a dad with these two young men who were his sons and we started talking about the belfast and just different and i'm telling you man brits so engaged with their world war ii history they are so passionate about it but to to speak to your question more than once somebody would refer to something that was like 30 miles away and they would talk about oh that that's a different culture up there (laughs) totally different that's my commute to work (laughs) i'm like man i drive 80 miles you know, in my job every day, don't even think about it. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. or, or a hundred. I mean, so yeah, I mean like, like 20 miles over. And the other thing it's congested. So like, well, like Layton told me, he said, I don't drive in London. He says, if you Walk. guys can Uber 14 miles out of London, I'll pick you up, but I don't drive into London. And I get why I understand that. It's like driving to New and York city. People just everywhere. And you know, Little bitty cars, motorcycles, motorbikes, huge buses, double decker buses, tourist buses, regular buses. It, it's just you. You've got to have nerves of steel to drive in that, and it's on the left hand side. Everything's the opposite. Sure. It's, you know, um, but but yeah, like to go twenty miles here in Florida, Texas, or Alabama is nothing. Yeah. You know, over there to go twenty miles, man, that's that's something. Yeah, my height, when I was working computers and radio, the radio station was 33 miles from my house. So between that and my computer job, I was putting anywhere from 130 to 200 miles a day on my truck. That's why I was oh, burning man. through them so quick. Yeah. I, I, it saddens me that you didn't get any cool air because if there's anybody who – you got three guys on this podcast, and each one of us live in states that are just ungodly hot right now. And the fact that you yeah. could have had a nice – 70 degree day and it just well yanked look, away I mean, from walking you. around seeing the 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 reenactors you know these guys are dressed up in british wool mm-hmm. you know and and i don't think i saw anybody dressed in american gear i think it was all brit you know all brits uh i mean they were they were suffering well, Jeff can tell you firsthand, that's the advantage of doing Marine Corps impression. I remember my first event ever. I'm out there, my HBT cotton's got a nice cotton cover on my helmet. The sun's not shining down. Meanwhile, the airborne guys and the guys in the wool are dying. Their helmets are hot from the sun. I got a nice cover on it, and they're all hiding in a tent, pulling water. I'm like, it's not that bad out here, but they're all in the wool with the. It's like that's the key advantage to the Marine Corps impression in hot environments, is it's a more breathable uniform. Well, and half the buildings don't have air conditioning, like the green room, no air conditioning in there because they typically don't need it. Yeah. That's like you California. Know? My, when I moved out to Long Beach and lived with my dad, his 
Long Beach bungalow was close enough to the ocean it did not have central air. He had a portable air conditioner that we'd kick off maybe for a week in the summertime, but the rest of that you didn't need it because the wind would just blow in off the cold water. That's crazy. But now it's like uh, I will say, I mean, the T thirty four was you know, I, look, I mean, I'm around cat machines all day. Yeah, I'd say you're around tractors all day. But it's I'm telling you what struck me machine heavy equipment today is so refined. Mm-hmm. Compare like this. This thing was a living, breathing dragon. Yeah. I mean, because we, we were both standing up in our respective turrets, because there are really no seats down in the in the belly of the tank. You know, the driver had a compartment, but um, you're standing up in it when when they when it stops to turn left or right. It's <laughs> yeah, you're jerking like around. A city bus standing up that cord. Oh my God, it's loud. You've got that V12 just rumbling away, exhaust everywhere. It, it's just nuts. Thanks for bringing that up because people don't think about that. Kind of like when we watch Band of Brothers, it would never occur to us, but the Pacific so gratefully reminded us about what people go through environmental-wise. And you're watching these old clips and you see these Sherman drawing around the street and they got like 30 guys, like the scenes you see in Band of Brothers. they got just mm-hmm. two platoons stacked on a Sherman tank. As somebody who's been lucky enough to ride on multiple of those, that whole back deck is just one giant exhaust grate, and they're sitting there idling, and that diesel fume's just rolling out. I got, I almost got carbon monoxide poisoning one day from standing on the back of those too long. So you don't think about that when you see them on the newsreels and them just sitting up there bringing that crap in for. I think I read a memoir years ago of a of a German Panzer commander, yeah, like. Carius or somebody, I, I can't remember. It was one of those stackpole publishing books. And there there was a guy, a German tank crewman, like fell asleep on the back deck and actually died from exhaust yeah. fumes. Because it literally just comes up out of that grate. There's no exhaust pipes down on the bottom because obviously you're driving through water. You don't want to get back up and mm-hmm. get water through your exhaust. So it all just comes out of the top. But that, yeah, man, that T-34 was just, it just like I said, I just kept thinking of a, a fire breathing dragon, which is a goofy analogy, but just so rough and so loud and the jerking motion of turning and you know, it just it was a really unique experience. Jeff can speak to this because when he worked at the museum they had an alligator, they had tanks, they had a landing craft. We often forget how rudimentary that crap was. I mean, it was there to perform a function and that was it. You, when you look at some of this stuff, you're like, oh, wow, this thing really went much to this. It's like, surprised they got half those guys there. Yeah, they were. I mean, they were built for 18, 19 year old kids to be able to keep going in the field with, you know, bare minimum tools. I mean, they were, they were just utilitarian. So, yeah, you'll know. I mean, there's nothing about comfort in a tank in any kind of armored warfare. And I really, um, when I was a kid, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to I wanted to be on a tank. I wanted to be armor, you know, Patton and all that great stuff. You know, these visions of grandeur of me up in a turret one day, you know, in the middle of the desert on top of an Abrams, you know. And luckily my my recruiter um uh, talked me out of that. <laughs> He's like, dude, you're you're too smart to be on a tank, kind of thing. Um so luckily, but I really yeah, at the museum, you know, here I, I got a real first hand look at at uh you know, because I used to have to do everything on that on that M three Stewart. And training new crews, and and I, you know, typically I would drive it if it was in a parade or public event because I was obviously employee. You don't want volunteers doing that. 
Um, but yeah, it, it really kind of gave me a, a firsthand look at, man, you're just so vulnerable. And, you know, when you got a top speed of like 35 miles an hour, it's a seven cylinder radial engine in these Stewarts. Um, yeah, super loud. You're basically your seat. If you flip a five gallon bucket over like at a Home Depot, uh-huh. if you flip it over upside down and sit on it, that seat is bigger than what you've got inside of the turret. Uh, for both sides, for the TC and, or loader and gunner. And uh, the drivers, you know, you're more comfortable in a Bobcat today, skid steer, than you ever were inside driving one of those Stewarts. So, yeah, you're right. And, I mean, yeah, they have mufflers. The exhaust typically should only be coming out of those mufflers. But tanks are kind of like helicopters. You know, if they're not leaking, they're not running. <laughs> so that vent, while that was really meant for more of an intake and for it to breathe, because it's probably just kind of like it's probably got some some leaks in the exhaust here and yeah. there and some cylinders or, you know, so it's just it's everywhere. And, and I remember if you stop. Uh, and idle for too long, it does start leaking into the troop compartment. It's kind of like, um, have you ever, have you guys ever had the sad, um, disadvantage to have to ride in a car with the rear windshield broken? You don't put much thought into it, but I've, my brother, his rear windshield got broken on his Dodge Omni back in the nineties, like an 84 Dodge Omni, which which looked like the Chevette. It was the hatchback, but that back window got broken. And so when we were driving to my mom's in Kentucky down the interstate, you don't think about it, but aerodynamically, what happens to the air when it gets to the back of your vehicle, it curls in. And so we got like an hour away. We had to stop somewhere. We were lightheaded because it was just carbon monoxide blowing through the back and kind of like when those tanks and all that heavy equipment sit still and the wind's just stagnant, it just kind (laughs) of, You get that same feeling. That kind of takes me back to my childhood. I mean, I, I basically grew up traveling across country on vacation in the back, not in a seat, but in the back of my dad's nine passenger station wagon, right? <laughs> yep. So had a tailgate, you know, a little 88 mm-hmm. Pontiac Safari. I think they called the dark blue, the wood gray. <sighs> and that back window was always down and I could run around and do whatever back there. You know, of course, this back in the day when it didn't matter, but. Yeah, that's when um, my parents, they made yeah. their transition from the station wagon, and we got a Chrysler Voyager that still had the fake wood grain. And when we drove from Kentucky to Florida, they'd just take the back seat out and lay down sleeping bags. And us kids, we would just pass out. But same thing. If that thing would have flipped, you would have had six kids rumble. No seats, <laughs> no seat belts. We literally took the seat out and just put blankets down and drove for 17 hours. <laughs> same thing. It's crazy. the days, man. Yep. Nowadays, you got to have a kid's seat until they're eight. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I'm so glad my kid was older by the time those those things came in. So all in all, the round trip, everything went well. You didn't have any like airline nightmare stories or anything like that. No, well, when we got back uh, Monday night a week ago t- tonight. Um, hit Atlanta. We had to go through customs, but we still had to get on a plane to fly to Birmingham. Well. They, they got my wife's bag and my son's bag, got them loaded. My bag apparently got put on a later flight from Atlanta to Birmingham. What do you need a bag so for? It never came in on the carousel. You know, we were staying there at the carousel. We never saw my bag, so had to report it. They had to file a claim on it. Ended up getting it two days later. You know what I heard? Yeah. I saw a video, and I never thought about this before, but you know how, like, growing up in the day, like, if you went skiing or snowboarding, you just get a new lift pass and just and by the end of the winter you had like seven or eight of them right mm-hmm. 
I guess pe- people do that when they travel. They leave their little tags on the baggage kind of as a reminder of where they've been. And I never thought about this, but I was watching a video where they're behind the scenes in the airport. And they said, well, sometimes you put your bag on a conveyor belt and you got one of those old tags on there and that gets scanned. And a lot of times that's why people's baggages get sent the wrong place because they have 33 tags from previous trips and the wrong one gets scanned. I kind of wondered about that. So it behooves you to take that crap off and just throw it in a, a memory <clears throat> drawer somewhere instead of leaving it piled up on because I guess it doesn't happen a lot because the codes tend to change. But every once in a while, I guess if you're a regular traveler, that one gets scanned and all of a sudden now your baggage is going to LA on that trip you took two months ago. We we had a layover before we could board the plane and fly out on the on the seven sixty seven. We actually got held over so long we thought the flight was going to be canceled because apparently when the plane had come in, somebody had taken a picture of the wing and posted on social media <sighs> that something was flapping on the wing and it was oh, dangerous. Boy. So, of course, they're out there taking the damn wing apart to make sure nothing's <laughs> wrong with it. Well, they told us all this later when they yeah. announced it. Okay, we're now ready to board. And we were delayed like three hours. Uh, they should have got on the headphones and said, whoever Instagram account so-and-so at yada, 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 thanks. You're the reason we sat here for an hour because exactly. your post. Well, it, and because they said something like this, the mechanics can't go out there and look at it and go, you're good, you're fine, take off. It has to go all the way to Delta. It's court. a liability. So they did that, and then we get on, and we're buckling in, and they're all the stewardesses or flight attendants are doing their thing. Then they had to delay us again because one person said, okay, I'm out, I'm not going. Oh, you know, they crikey. got or whatever. They volunteered. They have to, you cannot fly with luggage where the person has gotten off the plane. So they had to do a hand search through all the baggage of this 767 to get that one guy's bag. It's a navy blue Samsonite. <laughs> that narrows it down. <laughs> well, we finally i mean yeah all things considered man remarkably smooth um expensive the exchange rate is not favorable to the dollar no anymore. it's going to get worse but we won't get into that it felt great coming home I mean, oh, yeah wow cheap american food now yep uh, i'm so tired of spending good money on bad food i i try to cook us home as much as i can now yeah well, I'm, I'm with you there. But. Real quick before we get into what you read, and I just want to remind everybody, if you want to support what we do here at the uh, What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com or D-410.com. Click on that Patreon link, sign up, subscribe. It's a dollar a month. There's a couple other plans on there, but we're perfectly happy with the dollar a month. And while you're on our website, you can click and order um, the What's the Scuttlebutt t-shirt, stickers, and Jeff's favorite, the mug. He wants to be the true spokesman for the value and the quality of our mug. He travels around with this mug like Tom Hanks traveled around with the volleyball, and it's just as durable, if not better. He's singing the praises. <laughs> and so he highly suggests you head over to WTSPWorldWorld.2.com. Click on that merch link, get yourself a coffee mug in multiple colors. Uh, Henry, while you're here, you want to – give our patrons an insight on what you're going to donate as part of our giveaway. And there's two of them. And we're going to split them up over two different yes. months. And we've been hinting about this and um, okay. now's the time we're going to let you explain to the fine people. So if you're not a member of Patreon, head over to WTSP world war com. click on Patreon, sign up. Don't matter which plan. As long as you're an active member, you're enrolled. And so Henry, please, um, Jeff and I are both excited about this and, if you could share yeah. with the audience. Um, so it is a print done by Valor Studios, two prints, 
Uh, one is called Off the Line, which shows the Marines, one of whom is my dad, of course, and his other buddies from K-35, walking. It's kind of a collage of different pictures, but it's walking past on the airfield. They've been pulled out of the line momentarily or for a brief rest, but you see Corsairs, you see the Umar Brogel behind them being shelled. You just see this, this it's a great collage of just different things that, that you would see. Um, yeah, that's Jeff's got it right there. It's a beautiful um, print. I, I actually, that, so that piece of artwork was done back in 2010. I was a consultant for Valor Studios for that. Yeah, Adam Makos and I kind of worked together to come up with an idea um and, and then they hired a, a person to paint it um and then the other one is called off the beach same scenario adam and i worked together i was a consultant for that for that painting and it's uh matt hall painted that one and it's a scene of the lvts coming up on the beach you see my dad and some other k35 guys going ashore uh beautifully done got hellcats strafing the beach and you see other LVTs. I mean, it's just just a just a great beach landing scene print of Pacific action. So, off the beach, off the line, two prints, and I have a copy of each. And I believe I sent you yep. guys. You, Jeff, and I both have. Both, I, yep, I have them as well. So I have these. These were left over, and you asked if I'd be interested in donating them, and I said, "Yeah, sure." And so we figure to give our audience more chance to win well two out of x amount instead of giving them both one person we're going to split them up because they are you know they are available through valor studios they have a select few left and they are not a set when you purchase them so they are we're not breaking up a set by doing this they're just two different prints same theme and so we want to give people more chance to win so we're going to do we're going to stack them kind of like we did with the coffee we're going to do one one month and one the other and um, right. we're going to put more details up on the website. We want to give people plenty of time to sign up. This is our first episode. We've announced what they are, so we're not going to do it right away. We're going to you know, wait a little bit and give people time to sign up, but we're excited about that. Um, unbeknownst to you guys, I did a drawing last week, and one of our existing patrons won another one of our autographed M-blocks plus some decals. I sent those out. And so we try to do that from time to time as a thank you for everybody supporting us. Um, you know, I'm going to try to get together and do some more patreon exclusive content that we can post but as a thank you from us to you guys for supporting what we do here um that's our little thank you for the next few months and then down the road we'll come up with another giveaway so thank you henry for that um before we get into the books do either one of you have any plugs we want to get out of the way before we get into our books i do jeff you want to go uh, yeah, so last week I had mentioned that I was going to be a guest on Snafu Pod uh, that I had to postpone <laughs> to this coming week. So two days from now, let's see, it'll be Wednesday the 20th, uh, I believe it's 7 p.m. Central. I'll be on Snafu Pod's uh, podcast, episode. you're familiar with Snafu Pod, he is all He's Oh, I can't wait. Um, but then apparently he also does these debriefing episodes where he'll have a guest on and, and we'll talk probably just all things World War II. So yeah, really looking, looking forward to that. That's, that's the next thing I've got really, um, coming down the pike other than really looking forward to finally getting to meet Scott Gibson the end of this month. 
at a banquet um, in San Antonio. So that's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of good pictures and content should come out of that. Henry, what do you got coming up? Um, I, well, working on my manuscript, I've mapped out a plan of action with John McManus on how I'm doing my third draft, worked in Richard Frank's suggestions. Uh, more to come on that. Um, talk to the guys at Library of Congress. They, I'm not sure where that's going to go. Okay. They want to do a Eugene Sledge collection. Cool. Uh, probably what what I discussed with them was a photograph that I have, the letter that I have that he wrote to my grandmother coming off Peleliu, and then the Bible. Okay, those are the three items that they would call the EB Sledge collection. Um, not sure where that's going to go. Another story on that. There's there have been some wrinkles, but I don't want to get into that. But the We Happy Few five hundred six guys, meaning Matt and Layton have been working with them to put together a symposium for spring of 24. Um, it, it'd be kind of a similar to the World War II International Conference, that kind of thing. Sure. I They want me to be at this thing. We'll see where that goes. April of 24 is being discussed. M- more to come on that. Um, Saul David and I are supposed to do a Zoom call this weekend. He, he is trying to, well, there's a British... TV producer, we've already done one Zoom call. This guy apparently wants to do a documentary on devil dogs. Hell yeah. So if he can get the funding, then it will happen. And it could be intriguing, some intriguing stuff going on with that. If he doesn't get the funding, it won't happen. You know how it works. Yep. So, but Saul, Saul and I didn't get to talk as much as we wanted to at the We Have Ways Fest, but we're supposed to Zoom on Saturday. But um, I actually got... I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, this gentleman named Dan Vermilia emailed me today. They are doing a, he is from the Eisenhower National Historic Site in Gettysburg. He's friends with Jared, our buddy, Jared Frederick. Yep. Uh, they, in 2020, September of 24, they are doing a World War II theme kind of event weekend, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he's inviting me to speak at that. Uh, Jared will be there. I'm going to talk to him tomorrow. I, I that that could be fun. I, I definitely want to talk to him. I, the only thing is that we have Waste Fest next year may be at the same time as that. Uh, I got gotcha. you. So we'll see what happens with that. But um, so basically, I don't have anything coming up until November. I'm going to be hopefully in Alabama up your way um, at Fort Morgan for the 80th anniversary of Tarawa. Um, mm-hmm. It's a living history event put on the um, Alabama Marine Corps League, uh, put together by Galen Wagner over at Fort Morgan, Alabama, and that is the mm-hmm. November 3rd through the 5th. And then I got an invite to an interesting thing. It's a Battle of the Bulge event that's being held up in um, Mills Historic Park up in uh alabama as well patrice alabama and that's Where? in january patrice b-e-a beatrice yeah it looks like beet rice but yeah beatrice hang on where beatrice uh i'm curious that sounds like blunt county or that something. says mills historical park up off of uh, highway uh, 265 beatrice alabama okay that's 118 miles north 
Well, hang on. Let me. I'm looking on maps. That just came out. I posted a link on that on um, what's the Scuttlebutt Facebook page. They're looking for people interested in doing that event. I think this is a, a year one or maybe a year two event. Okay, that's down. Is that South Alabama? That's I I believe so. I don't know. Like I said, I just got invited to this group today. I don't know a whole heck of a lot of it yet, but yeah, yeah, that's southeast or that's southwest. Okay, it'll that's be about two hours from me. It'd be interesting to see what kind of cool weather they get up that way in January. Hoping, hopefully, it's not a too warm of a January. Yeah, but uh, so they're doing a battle of the bulge event. Yeah, I guess they're kind of anticipating, hopefully, to see some snow. I'm not sure, but. uh Jeff, before I forget, we have a mail call letter. And before we get to the books, I'm just over until Henry mentioned email or mail. I, I was going to, I almost overlooked mail call. So if you would take the lead and uh, read the mail call for this week, and if you have an email question or comments for the show, please email us at mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Okay, yeah, this one comes from arguably maybe one of our bigger fans. Uh, It reads, hey, Don, Jeff, and Henry, although he is on a small hiatus, uh, I recently finished reading Alex Kershaw's The Longest Winter. And firstly, what a great read. Secondly, I've been wondering ever since I finished it how it hasn't been adapted into a screenplay yet, considering the great book-to-movie adaptations we have seen since Band of Brothers came out in 2001. The book is so detailed, well-researched, and so wonderfully written, you can practically visualize what's happening before your eyes. That speculation led me to the following question I would like to ask you guys. Is there a book about any war campaign, specific units or stories, etc., that you would like to see be adapted into a movie television series with the underlying condition that is being, quote-unquote, done right? It is, as always, a pleasure to watch and listen to the pod. Keep up the great work. And this comes from Camilla over in Denmark. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Don, you just held up a, a cover. I was, I've had it back here to kind of hopefully be a reminder of the, <laughs> of the mail call for you. Um, I have not read The Longest Winter, but I want to actually this winter. Uh, I've, I've read some of Alex Kershaw's stuff, and it's, and it's fabulous. Um, but to, I guess I'll go first to answer the question, uh, what's a book that we'd like to see, uh, you know, made into a a movie or a TV series. And I'll be honest, I have to say that, uh, to, to stick on that mini series theme, uh, band of brothers, outstanding, the Pacific, every bit is good, maybe better in some other aspects. We're all real excited, uh, for masters of the air to finally come out on, I guess, if you're an Apple person, yeah, um, right. I still haven't even been able to watch Greyhound yet, so it's yeah. probably going to be several years before I get to see <laughs> Masters of the Air. Um, but, uh, you know, the Navy version to that, maybe a Navy counterpart to those miniseries, I think would be tremendous. And the book to do it from is this one here by Pulitzer Prize winning author Mitch Weiss, The Heart of Hell. We've... Uh, We've talked about it several times on the show. Go back and look at some of the uh, episodes we've had Dennis Blocker on as it's uh, kind of because of him and his grandfather. Uh, the story as to why that's how the book uh, came to be. But, you know, there's so much to it there that one movie could not do it. There's uh, there's so many ties with um, 
Sign Arbor and Eddie Jones and and you know, falling in love through letters they'd never actually met. And I think those letters back and forth were transcribed, and I believe they were published up there in Montevallo, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean, there's a lot of material here. There's a lot of characters that you just um, – you want to know. I mean, it's it's it could be the Navy's version to me of Band of Brothers if it was, as Camilla said, quote unquote, done right. Uh, so that's that's my two cents on that one. And Camilla, thanks again for for emailing us. We always love to hear what y'all have to say. I'm going to go next. And uh, this is a book we've brought up on the show. And it's actually a book where I, one of the very first authors I ever interviewed going back to the early days of the show, which was um, the author Gregory A. Freeman. And this is not only a great story, but I think it would be a different type of World War II movie um, because of the different aspects, and that would be the Forgotten 500. And here's just a quick synopsis. In 1944, the OSS set out to recover more than 500 downed airmen trapped behind enemy lines in Yugoslavia. Classified for over a half a century for political reasons, the full account of the unforgettable story of loyalty, self-sacrifice, and bravery is now being told for the first time. Um and the political side of it is, is you find out that the early organizers of the OSS, you know, their whole thing was we want talented people. We don't care about their political views. And so some open communists got involved. And when this rescue mission in Yugoslavia was taking place, they were going on. They had their own little civil war going on between two factions, one of them being a communist base and one of them being more of a trying to stay more republic or democratic and so, as you can expect, the pro-communist members of the OSS didn't want to do the mission in a way that it would be favorable for the opposite side in the Civil War. And so you had this back and forth going on. You had these civilians that were risking themselves from the Germans by hiding these American down pilots and these Allied down pilots. And then the fact that they literally had to clear an area of woods on this mountainside to make an airport big enough for this craft the land, pick them up, and then take off again, but do it with hand tools so that the German patrols wouldn't detect them working on this project. The whole story is just amazing, so I think that would be kind of a cool... I don't know if it would be a movie or a maybe... I don't know. You could probably get away to like a seven-part miniseries. It wouldn't be a 12-part like a Band of Brothers, but I think it would be an interesting little... Because there's a lot of character development, a lot of heroes in that, and I think it would be a pretty cool different style World War II movie or series to, to watch. Henry? Well, obviously, you know, glad to have seen the Pacific and Band of Brothers, the Pacific especially with the adaptation of with the old breed. But but I, I tell you, this just came to me. Forget what was done in the 70s, okay? If you could take the technology that we have, the ability to portray things accurately, I would love to see a a really quality series on the black sheep squadron. Yeah. <laughs> BMF two fourteen. I mean, to take that, I'm not talking about Robert. Con- I mean, I love that show, you know, obviously had some flaws, but to, you know, Bruce Gamble, my friend, Bruce Gamble wrote a great book on the black sheep squadron uh, a number of years ago. I've read it. I want to read it again, but to see that really done, I'm mean, really done. Right. You know, uh, that would be something I'd love to see. So in your remake, when it comes to principal characters, 
do we go with well-known actors or do we keep the template with a band of brothers and Pacific with the exception? Yeah. Would you so, kind of go with a no name or lesser known actor? So it doesn't bump you as much. I, I would say go with a lesser known, but here, here's the thing. I mean, we, I grew up thinking the black sheep squadron, you know, it said they were misfits and screwballs. Well, for, for those of us who love the history and started to peel the layers of the onion back, you didn't have to go very far to learn that that was not the case at all. That was pure Hollywood. You know, these guys were college graduates. They went on to achieve good things in their lives. They, they were sharp young men. And I would like to see maybe that explored a little more than, well, they were misfits and screwballs and always cutting up and carrying on. And, you know, let, let's move away from that and talk about the other. Because a lot of those guys, you know, History Channel did a lot with this. And you heard some of those guys talk about, you know, we, we were portrayed in that TV series as being screw-ups. And that was not sure. the case at all. Often. Henry, have you read this this one here? Once they were eagles, I I have that. I haven't read it yet, but I do have it. That's exactly what it reminded me of. That's exactly what these guys talk about in here. Uh, they were not just you know criminals and misfits, you know that. Yeah. Way. And it was it was it was how and and Boyington had a lot to do with it. He did, you know, in making the show. But it is what it is. It made good TV. Yeah, and it was back in the seventies. I mean, we had chips and Fantasy Island, man. I mean, you know. <laughs> I mean, but yes, I would love to see, but that book, yeah, I've got that. I I think I got it for myself Christmas a year ago. I just haven't read it yet, but I would love to see something really done quality with great Corsairs, the perfect detailing about VMF 214. And Don answers your question. I would go with lesser known actors. Gotcha. I'm just trying to look up some information here for this next question I have. And thank you, Camilla, for the email. Also, I should have said that. Is it Camilla or Camille? Well, but maybe she'll write us back. Yeah, I thought it was Camilla. No, I think it's Camilla. Yeah. Always appreciate our, our folks yeah. reaching out. When we watch oh, yeah. these World War II movies, regardless of when they're recorded, whether they're from the 60s and 70s with you know actors who were there, but now they're in their older age, got the Clint Eastwood movies, you got the... John Wayne movies. One of the things that kind of it's a misrepresentation, but you know, it is what it is. And that is the actor's age. They're usually thirties, forties and this and that. I was trying to look to see how old Joseph was when he did the Pacific. Um, do you think it would be weird or odd? Maybe not for us as aficionados and, and people who are knowledgeable on the subject, but do you think, it would be weird for the general public at large if they did a World War II movie with truly age-appropriate actors, seeing 17 and 18-year-olds on the screen, especially ones who look like they're 14 and 15. you think that would bump them a little bit? Because we're so used to seeing these hero roles played by 30, 28, 30-year-old actors when we're watching these movies. Do you think people could handle a, a full-length movie where the, you know, the NCO of the platoon is 20, 19, 21? It'd be interesting. It's thought-provoking. Yeah, I mean, I kind of... I immediately thought of Richard Jackal in the wartime films. He was 17, 18 years old. And, and some of that... I think of Guadalcanal Diary. Maybe he was 17 when he played Chicken Anderson. Um, but you're right, because it does kind of... I think it does kind of put a false sense of reality 
um, when you do see these, you know, these films and, and for young impressionable people like me going into the military, I didn't expect my NCOs to, to be such baby faces as some of them were not that they weren't good NCOs, but they certainly did not look like Randolph Scott, <laughs> you know, like, um, so yeah, I don't know. I think that's a great point, Don. I think it's something that I'm sure is talked about in every, probably every production phase of war films. But at the same time, you want your, your civilian audience to also take them seriously and understand that these guys had authority. And sometimes a pimply faced 19 year old kid that got is not going to do that for you. Yeah. Well, the reason on I, the big screen, whereas, you know. well, the reason I bring it up is there's that famous, I, I was, I'm trying to browse for it right now. Not that I could post it on our website. Cause we get dinged for copyright, but there's this one picture from D day where the cameraman's taking a picture down into the landing craft. And there's that one, they're all looking at the camera, but there's that one young cat. I'm sure you guys have all seen it. He looks like he couldn't be a day over 12 and a half. And you're like, holy hell, they were kids. Especially now that, you know, it's weird. I jokingly say the older I get, the younger old gets. Growing up as a kid in the 80s, huge fan of Young Guns and Young Guns too. Oh, yeah. Um, huge fans of Tombstone and all those. Now I'm 45, and I go back and watch that and see a 21-year-old Emilio Estevez or Charlie Sheen. It's like, holy shit, those guys were young when they did this movie. But as a as a fifth grader, they look like old men. But now that I'm on that other side and I'm going back and watch these old movies, you realize how young they were when they played those characters because those characters were young, but younger than they were. But just even that transition of watching something when you're a kid versus watching again when you're older, like, just it's crazy how the parents of time affects you when looking at someone yeah. when you're like, once again, you're 13, you look at somebody 22. Oh, that's, he's an old man. You're 40. You're looking at an 18. You're like, well, that dude's a kid. And so I just, it would be interesting to, to see how people would react and think, well, that's, that just seems unbelievable. Actually, that's more reality than all of the shows we've seen. I mean, band of brothers did a good job of trying to find some younger of the supporting cast and all that. But even a lot of their, I mean, how old was Ron Livingston when he shot Band of Brothers? I mean, he already done quite a few projects. Yeah, he'd already done Office Space. Yeah. And, but, you know, I'll tell you this. I mean, you well, like, I remember my dad always talking about it. He was 20, turned 21 on Peleliu. And so many of those guys, 18, 19, 20, you know, most Marines on average were a little bit younger than their Army counterparts. But when you look at archival footage of Peleliu two weeks into the battle, man, those guys look. To me, they look 40. so much older. Yeah. And when you think, man, if you took that beard off that guy's face and cleaned him up, he'd be 20. And yet he looks so much older right there. It's interesting. About two years ago, in the height of the pandemic, maybe three, when TikTok was really starting to change and pick up because people had time, there was this video where this woman took a photo. She found a photo of like three or four young women. They're probably 30, 32. And she was, the TikToker herself was like 40. And she's like, I'm 40. The women in this photo are 32. And this photo is from like 1953 or whatever. And she's talking about how they all look like they're in their 60s. Yeah. And it's like, and I do, I stitched this. Well, you got to remember, one, nowadays we have all these different, you know, vitamins, preservatives, better medicine. I said, but two, 
that's a generation of people who grew up during the Great Depression. You know, then their brothers, their fathers, their uncles went off to war. They lived a bunch of stress. And then the Korean War. I mean, these the span of time in which those people it, what they experienced in the short 30 years on earth was a hell of a lot stressful than what we're dealing with. And, and it's crazy how you do, you go back and look at photos, even from the seventies, you look like yearbook photos from the seventies and that kid's 17, but he looks like he's 24. It's just so weird how they definitely seemed older back then, especially after you were saying, you know, after a couple of weeks of combat, you just look so much older. Well, you remind me of uh, a time where when I was working at the Nimitz is when I really thought that I really felt we were really doing something right. It was right at the end of closing the program. And, you know, we just had our passing review of all the companies. And, uh, you know, again, that, today, uh, I don't know, they're they're kind of scaling some things back. But uh, and, and I still encourage people to go. But it was definitely not the amount of, you know, volunteers that we had yeah. uh, when, when I was there. It's just it was a different it was pre-COVID. It was kind of a different time the pool from active duty personnel. And I remember at the end, you know, the whole past review and this, this woman, she was kind of sitting up front. She seemed very engaged in the whole thing. Right. So she comes up to me. I mean, she's just like, she's been crying and she's just so emotional. And, and she said through her like sobs, she said what stuck out to her the most. She said, I just can't believe how young these guys look. She said, they just, they just look like they're so young, like they're too young to be in uniform. And I just kind of smiled. I said, ma'am, most of these guys are in uniform duty service members. They're they're soldiers. They're Marines. They're sailors. Coasties. Even had a couple of Air Force guys. I said, that's how it was. That these guys are serving our country right now. Yes, they look so young because they are young. Are young, and that's exactly what it was like in in, in that pickle war. You know, it's a young man's job. It, so, but the um, people who lead those that's men. Important. The people who were in front of the cameras are always so much older, so we just assume everybody's their age. But no, that's not the case. Yeah, and, and you know, and but but Henry brings up a great point too. And I'm trying to remember the German pilot. There was a photograph, uh, several photographs taken of a German pilot from the First World War that were taken, I think, only four or six months apart. And you would swear you were looking at a father and a son. the The change is so drastic and. I mean, it, it's it's a rabbit hole. I don't want to go into now at the end of the episode, but if I if I can find it, I'll pull it up and show you guys. Maybe we can we can talk about it. It's just what combat did, and it is unbelievable the change physically changed the this man's face in just a few months. Unbelievable. That would be a good topic because I think a few years ago a photo project came out where a life. Uh, you know, Rolling Stone, whoever, an AP photographer got a hold of some recently just graduated from boot camp, got like seven or eight of them, black and white photo, just right in their face, and then got a hold of them after they came back from their combat deployment a year, whatever, depending on what happened to them, and then took photos and put them side by side. And it looks like it was only three years, but it looked like a 10 year gap because of what the stress did to them. And that's a, that would be a definitely good conversation. We're going to wrap up the show real quick with what you're reading. Hey, Jeff, you are always got your uh, nose in the, the wonderful smell of a bind, binding on an actual book. What you reading? <laughs> well, it hasn't changed much since last week because, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm knee-deep in this grease course. So finished Homer's The Odyssey. Yay. Still getting through Virgil's The Aeneid and uh, the story of Greece and Rome. So very boring, dry. If you love ancient Greece like I do, it's it's – 
it's still sometimes dry and boring, but I'm 267 days from my trip to Greece and it's going to be uh, so much more enjoyable because of this course. I'm not going to lie, but it is eating my lunch, guys. I will admit that this is a healthy course. That reminds me of a new trending thing on TikTok. For some reason, the thing is go up to your husband or boyfriend and ask him how, how many times a day they think of the Roman Empire. And sadly for me, I zero. <laughs> I never think of it, but apparently every every other dude out there apparently thinks of the Roman Empire multiple times a day. But me, not so much. Hey, Henry, what you reading? Uh, well, currently, uh, like I said earlier, reading James Holland's book, Brothers in Arms, about the Sherwood Rangers. Uh, right before that, I read a book by Bruce Gamble on, it was called, uh, well, it was about Rabal. Um, he actually wrote a trilogy on Rabal starting with when the Australians garrisoned it and then the Japanese took it at the beginning, you know, early 42. Uh, and I haven't read the other two volumes yet, but, but right now, Brothers in Arms by James Holland about the Sherwood Rangers Sherman tank unit. I think last week we were talking about how um, I occasionally go into my Amazon list and find books that I put in there during the show, and I just started. Uh, George P. Hunt. Yep, Coral Comes High. And um, so far, it really – Really good book. Um, I think it serves you right every once in a while to go and read a really honest, brutal book just to kind of, because after a while, you know, you read so much of, about World War II, you know, you need a reminder how horribly gruesome this thing was. And this is another book that kind of reminds he you of He was first Marines, correct? Correct. That that was one of the early, I mean, that thing came out in the 50s, didn't it? Uh, the publishing date on this is uh 1946 so it was even before that oh yeah i didn't know it was that old i thought it'd come out in the 50s yep 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 and so uh, that's going to wrap it up for this and obviously as i finish this book i'll go more deeper into it we've kind of run long tonight and i know some of our um devices are getting weak on battery power but uh we want to thank each and every one of you for uh, hanging out with us for another episode of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast and as we said earlier please head over to wtsp world war ii Click on the link, sign up for all the stuff, and find us on YouTube as well. For myself, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge, we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>